So today we start our new series, How to Get Killed in Six Days. Anybody curious? Just a little bit? It's going to be awesome. We're actually going to be looking um, at the life of Jesus, the last six days of his life leading up to the crucifixion, and looking at how his sacrifice does actually affect us. And more specifically, we're going to be asking the question, the challenging question, what is it in my life that might actually need to be killed in order for me to truly experience the abundant life, the life in freedom that Jesus says I have access to. And today we're going to even ask you to take it a little bit further and to ask the question, am I willing to be honest and to identify that thing that might actually need to be killed? Or am I just going to maybe make some excuses um, and not go there? Well, like that popular song says, I'm only human, don't put your blame on me. And you know, we're, we humans are pretty quick to grab hold of excuses for the way we are and the things we do, right? And it's pretty popular in culture right now. Hey, don't judge. Whatever I do, what did you expect? I'm only human. And sometimes we do, we use that as an excuse. And, and we love excuses. In fact, some excuses are just hilarious. Take a look at some of these very, these are real school excuses. Take a look at some of the excuses people use. This one. Please excuse Jennifer for missing school yesterday. We forgot to get the Sunday paper off the porch. And when we found it Monday, we thought it was Sunday. <laughs> nice. Or how about this one? Please excuse Ray Friday from school. He has very loose vowels. <laughs> school can actually help with that. As a, or how about this one? Please excuse Jimmy for being. It was his father's fault. <laughs> and then there are breakup excuses. Like, I need to work on me right now. Or you got to love this one. I feel like I'm just holding you back. Yeah, don't you love that one? This one might be even better to use. My fish died. I just need time to mourn alone. And then there are work excuses. Like this one. I can't make it to work today. My wife put all my underwear in the wash. Go commando, man. Come on. Get to work. Or this one. Uh, I won't get to work today. My doctor said I need more vitamin D. I'm going to the beach. I bet, I bet that person's going to get to go to the beach a lot after that, actually. Or this one. I'm going to have to miss work today. I chugged a bottle of mouthwash thinking it was Powerade and I'm sick. How many chugs do you think it took to figure out it's not Powerade? Right? Or this is my f personal favorite. Raisin cookies that look like chocolate chip cookies are the main reasons I have trust issues. <laughs> so humans are full of excuses. And you know, in a church that says no perfect people allowed, it's real easy to use that as an excuse. To say, hey, don't judge me. No perfect people allowed. I'm just human. Leave me alone. But that was never meant to be an excuse. It was actually meant to set us free from pretending we're perfect so that we won't just stay stuck. It's actually intended to let God search our hearts and our motives so he can help us grow. But it's really hard to look at, at, at motives, you know? What really drives all my decisions, all my actions, all my behaviors? And that's what we're going to be looking at a lot in this series we're starting today called How to Get Killed in Six Days. And yes, uh, our graphic arts team did use the Kill Bill look, in case you were wondering. But you'll be glad to know I absolutely resisted the idea of wearing a yellow uh, leather jumper today, okay? You gotta draw the line somewhere, right? 
Yes, sorry I even put that image in your mind. Now, the truth is this series may be as jarring and disruptive as a Quentin Tarantino movie because we're going to look at what motivated Jesus to die for you and for me, and we're going to look at why he calls us to actually follow him, to follow him to the cross. So it's six days out from crucifixion. He's going to die. He knows it, and he's going to die to bring new life to all who will follow him. It's a life of power. It's a life of eternal quality where love and joy and peace and, and security come from within, not from without. It's a resurrection life, but it will only come if he lays his life down. See, there's no resurrection without crucifixion. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to trace Jesus' story those last six days, hence the, the, the title, How to Get Killed in six days, and we're going to look at why Jesus was willing to go to the cross for us and why it is that to experience this new life he has for us, we have to kill those old things that stand in the way of, of God's life coming to us and through us because there's no resurrection life for us without crucifixion first as well. So we're going to take a real hard look at Jesus' last six days, but before we do, watch this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from death. They prepared a dinner for him there, which Martha helped serve. Lazarus was one of those who were sitting at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took a whole pint of a very expensive perfume made of pure nard, poured it on Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The sweet smell of the perfume filled the whole house. One of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold? For 300 silver coins. And the money given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and would help himself from it. Leave her alone. Let her keep what she has for the day of my burial. You will always have poor people with you. But you will not always have me. A large number of people heard that Jesus was in Bethany. So they went there, not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from death. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus too, because on his account many Jews were rejecting them and believing in Jesus. 
The next day, the large crowd that had come to the Passover festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Praise God! God bless him who comes in the name of the Lord. God bless the King of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and rode on it, just as the scripture says. Do not be afraid, city of Zion. Here comes your king, riding on a young donkey. disciples did not understand this at the time, but when Jesus had been raised to glory, they remembered that the scripture said this about him, and that they had done this for him. So we're going to be focusing in on John chapter 12, where it starts six days out. It's six days until Jesus is going to be killed. He's having dinner in, in Bethany. Bethany was a village just over the Mount of Olives, uh, just a walk down to, to Jerusalem. And for three and a half years, Jesus has been teaching and healing and, and, and feeding people and doing miraculous things. And now tens of thousands of people are, are following him. And the religious leaders of his day were the ones in positions of power and prestige. They were closely aligned with the Roman government, claiming to do so out of concern to protect the nation of Israel. See, they claimed that love for God was why they did all that they did, but they weren't really honest about their motives. And you know, when we're not honest with ourselves and with God about our motives, we can be deceived. And in horrible ways, like, like these Pharisees were. That deception is what would lead the religious leaders, these Pharisees, ultimately to kill Jesus. And so in John 12, it starts off, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. And Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with them. So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are brothers and sisters. And, and Jesus, uh, just that week earlier, had raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had gotten deadly ill. Um, he had died. He had been four days in the grave, and yet Jesus does the impossible. He brings him back to life. And it's such a notable, undeniable miracle. It becomes a watershed event and the last miracle Jesus will do because the Pharisees decide to kill Lazarus and Jesus. It says in John 11, here the Pharisees said, here's this man, Jesus, performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You say, well, why wouldn't they just believe in him? Motives. And see, that's the thing. Their true motivation was their own self-preservation of power and prestige. Jesus was doing miraculous things. No one could deny it, but Jesus threatened their idol. Their idol was their power and, and, and their prestige and their money, and they were willing to kill Jesus instead of killing what they idolized that really needed to die. And by the way, it's not just Pharisees that struggle with this. All humans do. But if we're not honest about, about our motives and about what we truly tend to put first in our lives, then we can be deceived. All of us can. 
See, the truth is you can only have one God. You can only have one ultimate first in your life. And many different things can find its, its place there. But whatever that ultimate first is, that is our God or our rival God. And it's better to just be honest and really wrestle through our, our mixed motives and think through what's really worthy of God-like status in my life. Because when we just make excuses and cover it up, we can be deceived just like the Pharisees. So they can't deny that Jesus has done the miraculous, but they don't like him challenging what they live for and what they value most, so they find a way to do what they want and kill Jesus. They claim Jesus is demon-possessed, that he's doing these miracles by Satan's power. And in fact, in the Talmud, the very historical religious, uh, uh, records of these religious leaders, it says this. On the eve of Passover, they hanged Yeshu the Nazarene, Jesus, because he practiced sorcery and led Israel astray. See, this is history, real history. This is not myth. And, and the very enemies of Jesus who would kill him couldn't deny he was doing the miraculous. So instead, for fear of losing their power, uh, they blamed it on sorcery. They, they said Jesus is doing this by the power of Satan. And these crowds that six days out will hail him king, they convinced to turn on him and get Pontius Pilate to hang him on a cross. So here we are at dinner at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. Matthew and Mark tells us it's at, at the home of Simon the leper. Jesus had healed Simon, this leper. He had raised Lazarus from the dead that week. Mary and Martha and the disciples, they're, they're all there. They're amazed. Look, Lazarus is here eating with us. They're blown away when Mary walks in and does a shocking thing. John 12, 3. Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. You know, Matthew and Mark noted that she also poured it on Jesus' head, not just his feet. In other words, she anointed his whole body. Uh, you remember anointing your whole body with perfume back in middle school? Remember that? <laughs> Yeah, my favorite cologne was Drekar. Horrible smelling stuff. Just, uh, and, and, you know, a, a whole body anointing couldn't cover up the stank of a 14-year-old boy back then. You know? But here Mary is anointing Jesus' whole body in preparation for burial. That's what we're going to find out. We don't know that yet. Now, to understand what's really going on in the tension here, you've got to understand how much perfume was worth back then. So if you think about it, in Jesus' day, you know, saving up money, you couldn't just go down to the first bank of Jerusalem and put your savings on deposit. There wasn't such a thing. And so often they would store up their savings in, in precious things that you could hold in a small volume like perfume. And we're told that this perfume was actually worth a whole year's wages. This is probably Mary's whole life savings. So stop and think about this. I mean, what do you make in a year? Don't say it out loud. Just tell it to yourself, okay? What do you make in a year? A whole year's wages. Think about that for a second. And now imagine saving up a year's wages. You know, you worked hard for that money. Uh, th think about how much that would be. Think about how long it would take you to save up that much. Think about the security you would find knowing that was safely tucked away. Or think about all the things you could do with a whole year's wages saved up. Can you imagine it? Oh yeah, every day. <laughs> and the truth is there's nothing wrong with that. 
There's nothing wrong with Mary saving. There's nothing wrong with us saving. There's nothing wrong with having. It's a gift from God. It's a blessing. But now I want you to imagine pouring it out, all of it. Not Mary. Don't think about Mary doing it. I want you to think about you having saved up one whole year's wages and you just waste it. You give it to God. You pour it out. Can you imagine that? That's what's going on here. You ever done that? You ever given in a year? You ever given a whole year's worth of wages? Now, it'd be one thing to do that and say, oh, but look at all the good it's doing. Look at all the, the poor people it can help. Look at, look at how it can build a hospital in India or provide clean water in Nicaragua or help these kids, you know. But that's not what's happening here. It was just wasted. It didn't help anybody. Now, can you imagine how you would feel doing that? And why would Mary do this? And why would Jesus not balk at it? Judas was terribly bothered by it, as you saw, and says in John 12, 5, Judas, I think he was a lot more bothered than it showed there. Why wasn't the perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, on the outside, this is a reasonable question, right? That's a lot of money. I mean, think about all of the poor people in the world. Think about all the needs in the world. This could have been given to help them instead of just poured out and wasted. Why? I, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. And on the outside, that isn't a reasonable thought. To want to steward money wisely and really help people in need who need it most. The only problem, motive. See, Judas' true motives were very different from what he was saying in reality. And here's the troubling thing. I'm not even sure Jesus, Judas realized I think he was that deceived. I don't think he realized what his true motives were. And that's what's dangerous for us as well. If we're not honest about our mixed motives, and we all have mixed motives. I have mixed motives. You, we all do. If we're not honest about it, then we can be deceived. And instead of killing the wrong motives, we'll end up killing God. Now, we would never say that, and we would never think we would do that. But I'm convinced Judas never thought he would do that either. John notes Judas's true motives in John 12, 6. Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, what truly upset Judas was not that more poor people weren't going to be helped. That was just an excuse for his greed. Greed was his true God. That was his idol. That's what he thought about most. It's what he thought about as he laid his head on the pillow at night. It's what motivated all his decisions. It's why it's he lived for that security that more money would give him. Now, before we push Judas away as this evil, evil person who has nothing to do with us, I want you to remember a few things. Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. One of the inner 12. Judas was in Jesus' life group, right? And by the way, five days later when they're in the upper room and Jesus says, one of you will betray me tonight, everyone didn't look at Judas. They didn't know who it would be. They were, they were completely confused because Judas played a great Christian game, so to speak. He was in Jesus' life group. He was a leader in Jesus' church. He was on the front lines of ministry, doing ministry just like Jesus did. And even more scandalous, Jesus trusted Judas with the money. 
See, I, I'm convinced Judas actually had a gift for money. It was a gift that, that God had given him, and Jesus made him treasurer. Now, why would Jesus do that knowing what Judas struggled with? Well, God trusts all of us with a lot. That's the reality. He trusts all of us. And, and I believe he wants to see what we will do with it. Because we, we can take whatever we've been given and we can use it to love God and love people or we can use it for lesser motives. And I just think this was a test and an opportunity for Judas. See, Judas didn't have to betray Jesus. He wasn't forced to do that. It happened slowly with many little opportunities to decide. Will he kill his idol of greed and stop stealing and live for God? Or will he live for this idol of greed and ultimately, when push comes to shove, kill God? See, Jesus trusted Judas with the money so he could be saved what, from what ultimately would kill both of them. And the truth is, Judas ended up going out and hanging himself in remorse. I don't think he realized how deceived he was being. So what do you kill and what do you live for? It's a very, very important question, but it's really hard to let God search our motives. Do we kill the things that try to usurp God's rightful place in our lives? Or do we kill God when his commands threaten what we really value, what we really live for? What do we kill? What do we live for? And searching our true motives, you know, is really important if we want to see God's resurrection life come alive in us. See, the reason Jesus is going to go to the cross is because he wants to give you and me and Judas and Mary and Lazarus more than we could possibly imagine of life. But the life we long for, that life of love and peace and security and joy and happiness, it doesn't come from more out there. It comes from more in here. And it only comes when God has his rightful place at the center of our lives, which means we've got to kill. We've got to do away with anything trying to be first in his place. And you know, when I became a, a, a Christian, I remember having to wrestle with my motives, and honestly, I didn't want to. Um, I remember hearing the statement Jesus said uh, in Luke 12, 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And I hated that verse. I hated it. I wanted to kill it. I tried to do everything to push it out of my mind and push it away. Why? Well, because I had mixed motives. And that threatened me, to be honest. It threatened everything I had planned. It threatened everything I was living for. It threatened my whole sense of worth and security. I grew up very blessed. I, I had a lot going for me. Which, by the way, all of us who grow up in America are very blessed, if we haven't realized it yet. We have a lot going for us. And all of us have, have things to, to give and to use and to, and to do good and make a difference in the world. But I was deceived. Um, I thought, well, it was all by me, for me, and I deserved it all. I had worked hard, and I had worked hard. Did well in school, did well in engineering, got one of the top paying jobs out of college. I got raises and promotions and saved up a lot. And, and I thought I deserved it all when along comes this pesky Jesus and says, yeah, you have been given a lot. What are you going to do with it? To whom much is given, much is required. And I hated that thought. It was like a little grain of sand in my oyster shell that I wanted to spit out. Or 
it was going to turn into a pearl of great value. And I tell you that because my motives truly were mixed. In some ways, they always are, right? I really did want to love and serve God, but when God started poking and prodding at what really motivated me, my first reaction was to push him out, get rid of him, get rid of that thought, push him away, because it threatened my idol, what I truly was living for at that, at that time. And greed is an idol, you know, and we're told to kill it or it will kill God from leading your, you into real life. It says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. In other words, our nature apart from God, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Greed is an idol. It's no different than the idols of India or South America. Americans, we have our patron saint idols. And, and the way you can tell is just observe. I mean, imagine for a second. Imagine if aliens came to America and they just observed our culture. They, they watched our TV and our movies and listened to our songs and observed us on the internet. What would they observe that we talk about and think about and idolize and worship and center our lives around most? Money or more material things and sex, right? Wouldn't they conclude those are our gods, material things and sex? That's what we think and talk and center our lives around most. And that honestly is a great way to, to, to let God test our secret motives, to think about, well, if people observed everything about me, what, what would they say? What would they say I actually do with my money and my time and my decisions? What would they say if they could see my secret thoughts? Like, what, where, where do my thoughts go most of the time? What drives most of my thoughts? What drives my decisions? Because that's what we worship. That is either our God or our rival God. And we just have to be honest about it. Now, many things can take that rival God status. But Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and the word is mammon, which can be translated money or materialism, either way. You'll live for one, you'll kill the other. And you know, when Jesus didn't do what Judas thought he should, guess what Judas did? It was right after Mary did this that Judas goes and he makes a deal with the religious leaders to betray Jesus. They didn't want to arrest him in public because there would be a revolt. So betray Jesus when he's quiet and alone for 30 pieces of silver, for one-tenth what Mary just poured out. You know, over the years, uh, I've heard many people use the excuse of Judas. You know, how can a church fill in the blank? You know, spend money on this or on that. It should be given to the poor. But the question is, were they really concerned about the poor? You know, or were they really using the excuse of Judas to just hold back more for themselves? Now, uh, Jesus wants us to care for the poor. He commands us that. Uh, to do good. And you know, as a church, we take that very, very seriously. Uh, every week, you know, what's given uh, goes to support not only, you know, our, our benevolence and, and food pantry and uh, 
Organic Garden and Ongoing Refugee Ministry and Hope Clinic and partnerships in Haiti and India and Burundi and Nicaragua. But also over the years, we've literally given millions together, all of us together. We've given millions to empower people in poverty to help them solve their problems and get out of poverty. And we should, we should do that. But how many times have you heard that excuse? Oh, I'm not gonna give to a church. That money should go to the poor. And yet if you stop and think about it, how many of us without being a part of a church that values caring about people, how many of us would really raise millions of dollars to build a hospital in India or provide clean drinking water in the Dominican Republic or Nicaragua or, or help raise, raise up money to support village champions to help people get out of poverty in Simonette, Haiti and hundreds of other examples. And yet what is so sad is how well that excuse works. Well, I'm not gonna give to a church. Should be given to the poor. And yet how much is held back from the poor because of the excuse of Judas? Don't let that excuse hold you back, you know? I mean, if that's, if that's you, push into it. Let God really search your motives. Be honest. Is it really? Is it really that I want to give to the poor? Great, give to the poor. But don't use it as an excuse. Because when we're honest with God, then he can actually start to grow us. When we make excuses, we just stay stuck. So Mary pours out this lavish gift, wasting it on Jesus. Why does she do that? Because she understands nothing given to God is ever wasted. It's, it's ultimately the only thing we will keep, if you think about it. I mean, she realizes Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited one that prophets had foretold for thousands of years. The, the, the unseen, infinite creator made visible in a form we could relate to the lover of her soul, the one who holds all power over everything, over everything that threatens her life, over everything that can give her life. Nothing else truly matters. That's what she realizes. And he loves her. And he loves you. And her tears from last week when her brother was, was rotting in the grave, Jesus wept. Why? Well, because he cares about her. He cares about you. He's in it with us, not to take from us, but to give us more. Jesus said this right before he raised Lazarus from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He is life. He's a source of, of all life. So why would we think that life can be found in anything more than him? It's not sacrifice what Mary did. It's not sacrifice to give him all you have. It's the safest place to keep all you have. Because everything given to him, we keep. Everything kept from him, we lose. And that's what he's gonna prompt us to realize in these six days as he goes to the cross. Mary wasn't sacrificing anything. She was simply letting her overflow of love and gratitude to Jesus flow out in abundance, and that year's worth of wages was turning into something of eternal, greater value. But you know, one of the main differences between Mary and Judas is gratitude. Both saw the same miracles. Both saw Lazarus raised from the dead. Mary was grateful. Judas just wanted more. 
And the antidote to greed is always gratitude. Are you, are you thankful for what you have or are you more upset about what you don't have? That's why the Bible tells us, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And you know what? Even Harvard University has seen that it's good for us. It makes sense. Academic psychologists have discovered what the Bible said long ago. Said so in positive psych psychology research, gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Gratitude helps people feel more positive emotions, relative good, relish good experiences, improve their health, deal with adversity, and build strong relationships. Harvard Medical School. Mary gave out of gratitude. Judas made an excuse out of greed. You know, whatever, whatever we try to hold on to, we lose. Because death is the great equalizer. That's what Jesus is trying to show us. I mean, you will never see a U-Haul being pulled behind a hearse. Why? Because you can't take any of it. But you can send it ahead. And that's what Mary realized. Have you come to the same realization? Jesus said, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You'll always have the poor among you. You will not always have me. Mary was anointing Jesus for his death. He was anointed to die. He was going to pour out not just expensive perfume, not just a year's wages, his whole life for you and me. Think about that. If he didn't hold back anything from you, do we hold back anything from him? Why? You know, we just have to be honest and lay those things that are God rivals at his feet because they're only going to kill the life we think they're going to give us. And God wants to give us that life that we're longing for. You know, if we hang on to those idols, though, if we don't lay them at his feet like Mary did, they tend to deceive us into killing God, into getting rid of him somehow. So Matthew 26, Jesus said, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Is there anything standing between you and God? between God bringing his life fully to you. And it may be a good thing, but it's not gonna be a good God, right? So it's not gonna be good at the center, the first and only thing you put center in your life. And it might be a, it might be a child you idolize. It, it, it might be uh, savings. It might be a career. It might be something good. And ultimately God doesn't wanna take it from you, but he doesn't want you to, be, to make it your God because it'll kill the life you really want. Or it might be that some of you need to kill some of the idols that are gonna kill you. You know, greed or a drug or alcohol or lying or stealing or a sexual relationship or an affair. It's what you live for, but it's gonna kill you. It's gonna kill the life you really want and you need to kill it before it convinces you to kill God. Well, that night, Jesus said, Mary's done a beautiful thing to me, and truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And look, here we are 2,000 years later, and what Mary did is celebrated. And here's what you have to remember, that there is nothing you can ever do for God, motivated in love for God, that will not be remembered 
and will not be rewarded. So as, as we sing this song, I want you to just think, what is worth more than the one who created me and holds life and poured it all out for me? And I want you to just let him search your heart and search your motives and just be honest with him. 